Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure the survival and the success of liberty. What up, what up? This is your boy Rob Clark welcoming you to the 22 November Network. Get ready for another exciting edition of the Lone Gunman Podcast featuring me. That's right, your boy Rob Clark coming at you. Stay tuned. Be right there. Show episode number five four of the Lone Coming Podcast is now fully in effect. Thank you for checking the show out today. Got a good one for you. My man Russ LaChapelle is back on the show, and we are going to take you through three of the major crime scenes um, of this case the Texas School Book Depository. Tippet murder scene and the Texas theater and what was really going on behind the scenes what's the real story here we're going to try to put it together for you please do enjoy my man Mr. Russ La Chapelle and today I have a special guest returning to the show Mr. Russ La Chapelle how you doing Russ I'm very good, sir. How are you? Doing doing quite well today. And uh, for those of you who didn't hear Russ the first time, go back into the archives. It's a, it's a, about, what, five or six, seven shows ago. Uh, we talked a lot about the medical evidence. Today, we are going to get into a little bit about the Dallas Police Department, uh, several key players located within the Dallas Police Department, and the obfuscation that they were pulling that day. And we're going to get into a little bit about uh, Gerald Hill, I believe, uh, and a couple other people. So, Russ, why don't you kick us off, sir? Well, well, well. What we have here is the repetitive theme, basically, that we discussed as the, the premise by which the medical evidence was kind of changed or made to look differently. We have uh, we have obfuscation here, and there's a, a bit of compartmentalism involved in this, but in a different fashion because you have got the uh, the good old boys club involved. Uh, many of these Dallas officers were pretty 
much started uh, in the time period shortly after World War II, in a time period before the formulation of the CIA, uh, really in the OSS time period. So you had connections to some of these people back before the Truman Doctrine. Uh, so these these guys are you know they're doing their thing and it, it, it's a, a different kind of thing going on down that at that time in Dallas and uh, you have a couple of people that really everybody bowed down to there because they were known as very good investigators. You have uh, Bill Decker and uh, Will Fritz as key players that you know nothing really got done till you know all these people really did their thing and of course. These other players were in there at the same time, and they're doing their job. So they're making sure of the words they use or the actions that they do as far as their daily jobs. Um, one key guy here when this assassination occurred is Gerald Hill. Now, Gerald Hill, is a, he's not a gun-tooting, holding cop. He's a personnel person. And he's involved in working near the dispatcher's office. And uh, that was pretty much run by uh, Westbrook, Captain Westbrook. Right. He's more, like so, a, he's more of like an organizer type, right? Yeah, they're, they're uh, involved in uh, any kind of things that would go on as far as the police and gathering information on a personnel basis. And then anybody that would come in from the street or whatever, that information is all gone through in that thing. So it's an administrative type situation. Gotcha, gotcha. So you have the assassination occurred, and there was a lady working in an office by the name of Kinney, who was uh, seen as, at least identified as the first one that really heard something about the president being shot. And it started spreading through the office, and people didn't realize or didn't want to think that it happened. But eventually it came out that it did happen. And there's a lot of stuff going on as far as, like, who really found out that everybody had to converge on the, the corner of Elm and Houston. And the description of who made the shots and the timing situation there which is very close to probably between four and six minutes after the assassination occurred. Right. So you can work from that time period, and you have to imagine people running around in an office and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And a gentleman by the name of Gerald Hill, working there as an administrative person, he got involved because he said, well, I'm going to go, you know, they're going to need help. They're going to send all these people down there. So he goes down to the basement and finds a an officer, uniformed officer by the name of Jim Valentine, driving car 207, him and Hill, and a news person, Jim Hill, were down in the basement there, and they all got in the car, and they drove from just basically one block. Now, what's interesting is Hill and his testimony says that they got a little bit delayed because there was a some kind of a tie-up on the street, but it's hard to imagine that this really did happen because he's the only one that mentioned that. And the reason why I mention this is because it adds time to the timeline as far as their arrival at the corner of Elm and Houston. 
Right. But nevertheless, we did, this is a part of the, the part of the story that makes this a little more complicated, and this is why the obfuscation can possibly be to the advantage of certain people who I believe are kind of directing many of the events that are going on. So the three of them get to the, get to the corner, and that's documented. You can see it on the Cooper film. You see Hill getting out on the passenger side, Jim, uh, Jim uh, Valentine still in the car, and then shortly afterwards you see Yule uh, get out of the car also. So now they're all out, and then Valentine, I imagine he's driven a car maybe a short proximity from the building itself, maybe down on Elm Street Extension, not too far away. And Hill goes on to say that they're out front, and then eventually he enters the building. Now, before this happened, you had Marion Baker along with Mr. Truly already into the building, and this is where they go up the back stairway in the so-called, so-called uh finding Oswald on the second. So they're going up, and they get all the way up to the top. And Hill goes into the building, and he says, we, but he doesn't really identify who we is. But he also goes on to say that they finally went up upstairs, and there's a lot of series of events where the affidavits of all these officers started coming up and searching the building. There's, there's things going on here that they're not mentioning they're seeing Hill, but Hill's seeing certain things happening on the seventh floor. And of course, we know that the bullets were discovered and the gun was discovered on the sixth floor. Yep. So, how is it that Hill knows all these things, but he doesn't, he's not really identified as being up to notify or, or even see the events? And this, this along with a lot of other things that are to follow here, we're going to find out that. Hill's kind of putting together a story to build time in the situation. So what Hill is saying is that he leans out the window, and this is seen through photography, and in that he's announcing that we found the sniper's nest. Now, Hill always uses the word we, but he's not identifying people until afterwards. And seemingly he puts the story together afterwards when he's giving testimony or interviews to follow. And he's saying that, you know, that, and the documentation is that, that Mooney, Officer Mooney, a Detective Mooney, he was the one who found the bullets. Well, we do know that Craig was up there, too. Now, Hill mentions that he's, you know, he tells Mooney to stay with the shells and don't let anybody touch him and this and that. And he said there was another deputy sheriff there. He didn't know the name. But what's very, very interesting here is that Mooney never identifies that Hill was there. And Craig, uh, Detective, or, uh, Deputy Sheriff Craig, has said that him and Mooney, followed by Boone, went up the stairs together. Right. So this puts Hill up on the sixth floor, at least by himself. And we have to start getting into looking at the Warren Commission testimony and the people that were not put in. Uh, last time at Bell Club, which we were talk I was talking about how Bill Newman, probably the be best witness to the assassination, was not called. Plus uh, three other witnesses at Parkland, Vernon O'Neill and Aubrey Wright and Dennis McGuire, they were not called. So they're covering through obfuscation in these areas. 
but one interesting man, another man who really shouldn't have been on site, assistant DA Bill Alexander, he got over to that school book depository at one point or another. And if Hill's identifying we and Mooney's not there, then who is we? Right. Well, <laughs> Craig identifies that as they were coming up the stairs, two men dressed in suits were coming down. And this is where I see Bill Alexander actually physically in that building with Hill. Right. Let me and point out real down. quick to Russ <clears throat> that this would give them, and I'll be pointing this out throughout our little talk when it when it when it's appropriate. But this would, what you're saying essentially would would give them time to build, you know, move the boxes around a little bit, build a sniper's nest, and dump the shells and possibly plant a gun without anybody knowing. Very true. Because there's nobody there. Everybody else is up on the seventh floor or they're up on the roof or wherever they are, you know. Right. Which would also lend credence to, you know, when Craig says that Mooney found the shells um, and Mooney not saying that that Hill was around at that point. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, I mean, Either Hill's putting this together because he realized he had to, but he's definitely, Hill never mentions Craig. But, I mean, Craig offered information later on that is a key aspect of this trial, of this, of this whole case. And of course, we know how Craig got railroaded last time. I mean, you know, he's seeing, he's seeing Oswald coming out of the building, getting in the Rambler. Uh, you know, he's, with Buddy Walters and the gel that's found by the side of Elm Street. And they changed that around too, but the story of Craig becomes very interesting because, you know, Decker has him eventually right in his office, right outside his office, so he can keep his eye on him. And eventually Craig gets fired from the TPD when he was the man of the year. I mean, this guy, when Craig finally got to the corner of Elm Street after his movements basically was started on Houston and then he came through the middle of Dealey Platts and then up into the railroad area and he saw a lady in a Chevrolet and had her stop and watched but she eventually took off either um, he's in all these key places and Decker comes to the scene and he tells Craig hey somebody better take you know somebody better take charge here so Craig does do that, and he enters the building with Mooney, and they go up the stairs. And, of course, Craig's saying that two guys dressed in suits are coming down the stairs while they're going up. Now, who could these people be other than Gerald Hill and Bill Alexander? Exactly. And the fact that Alexander was never called before the, uh, the Warren Commission, you know, it, it makes a – here we got that repetitive theme again. Well, here's, here's a guy that – if Oswald had brought the trial, would have been involved in a lot of key information as far as Henry Wade being the main prosecutor and his sparkling record of never losing a case. I mean, you start putting in together how possibly other crimes there were, these convictions were found for. This is a repetitive theme of how they maybe kind of did it, you know, because they're just doing what they did before. Right, and let me, I'm just surmised this, but it fits together. Yeah, and let me also point out that you know it's it's quite possible 
you know, Craig wouldn't have known who these guys were because he was with the, he was with the sheriff's department and they were with the Dallas police department, the city police department. And unless they had had prior interaction together, he really wouldn't have known who these guys were. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I, th- I just think that Hill just took the right people at the right time where he found out through talking to other officers what they were doing and, and he just kind of formulated the story. And the solidification of this kind of theme as far as what I'll call lying through obfuscation and the compartmentalism of the whole thing you can see how Hill being in three different, the, the three key places in this uh, this whole case becomes very interesting that, you know, he could do this. I mean, after Oswald was arrested, he was the guy that went in front of the, of the, the news people and made the first announcement as to what happened as far as the arrest. Yeah, and, and let's reiterate that point for everybody that, Gerald Hill was at all three crime scenes. We're talking about the Texas School Book Depository. We're talking about uh, the scene of Tibbetts' murder, and we're talking about the Texas Theater, right? That is correct. And, of course, he gets back into the building with Oswald, and there's a continue beyond that, but we're a little ahead of the game. I want to stay in the School Book Depository. Right. So, you know, Mooney's up there. He definitely with the shells. Greg definitely saw him. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, when somebody shoots from a window with a rifle, the shells don't fall down as seen by Craig in close proximity to each other. They don't fall straight down and just hit the floor and stop. Okay? We have Tom Athea, who was there filming uh, the search of the sixth floor for the rifle. The Fritz actually going to the area to look at the shells. Of course, we know that for the longest period of time, there was only two shells, but there was really three seen. And uh, Fritz later on had picked, you know, he had picked that bullet up. So he was dead to the nail there as far as obfuscation of certain evidence there. Why is he picking up the third? Apparently, two of the shells were, were uh, okay, and one had a crimp in it. Yeah. Now, it's not going to work well coming out of a rifle with a crest. But of course, nobody had been there, so what's going on? I mean, I kind of feel like Oswald, and this I'm going to identify this because when he was all the way after the he said he was, he, he, he was the patsy. And I think maybe, and, and this is a, maybe a long stretch as far as this goes, but Oswald was working up on a 6-4. And if he had any prior knowledge that possibly this was going to happen, which would identify why he was able to come out in the hallway and say, hey, I'm just a patsy, that possibly he put those shells in. Now, the reason why I say this is that the, 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 the empty shells were from a 6.5 Manlick or Carcano, yet the rifle, as originally said to be found, was a 7.5 Mauser. And this goes to what Craig's saying, that the two don't relate. So, if Hill and Alexander planted the shells, they should have had it together that they're going to, if they did plant the rifle, that they would be of the same make. Right. And, and, you know, you do see photos of this rifle coming out of the Texas School Book Depository. And, I mean, from my perspective, I think they would have had to have found a, a man liquor inside as well or brought one in. 
because that's what it looks like to me that's coming out. I haven't seen any any photos that I could possibly identify as being an actual Mauser, um, unless you take you know Tom Alia's footage, you know where it's actually up in the sixth floor and that's where Craig was and that's what he said he saw. And and for everybody out there, you got to remember who who are so quick to dismiss Roger Craig and saying it's a Mauser. You also have uh, Boone and Weitzman's affidavits, signed, sworn affidavits, that they found a Mauser. And that is what would have been taken to court. Okay, and that alone would have, been, would have exonerated Oswald as using a Manlicker Carcano. These are two cops, seasoned veterans. You know, they can read. They, they stated very clearly what they saw in affidavit form on that first day there. It's only afterwards that that, that they recant and say they were probably mistaken. But uh you know we'll, we'll probably get into what happened to uh to uh I think it was Seymour Weitzman <laughs> uh and what happened to him a little later. But go ahead Russ, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah the one other thing that Craig had mentioned was that when uh Weitzman identified the the Mauser that Fritz agreed. Okay, now, if Fritz has got one of the bullets or 6.5 in his pocket, later on, we, we got a big problem because Weitzman's affidavit, I believe, I think that, uh, I think that Boone's also was, they were both on the Saturday after, the, the, the day after the assassination, they're signing these affidavits that's a 7.5 Mauser. Yep. I mean, there's a real big problem here when you see, a Carcano going out of the school book depository and Dave doing his thing to identify all this stuff. And you got all this information that's related to a 7.5 Bowser. So what is going on here? I mean, it's, it's just insanity. But let's get away from that. So what I see is Hill's up there probably with Bill Alexander. They're coming down the stairs and they come down to the sidewalk and there's a lot of things that go on as far as talking between the news reporters. And then you have uh, one of the head guys at the scene was Sawyer down at the down at the sidewalk. And he's starting to petition all these things. And you get the call that as an officer been shot in Oak Cliff. Now, if you go to the affidavit of Jim Valentine, he says that he received his keys back at the end of the day. And we also have Hill saying that he went out to Oak, Oak Cliff with certain people, Owens, uh, Bill Alexander, and I think Bill Yule was with them too. But the trouble is that when you start identifying affidavits and, and testimonies, Owens never, never says that Hill was in the car with him. And Bill Alexander in certain interviews never mentions Hill in the car with him. But car 207 isn't at the school book depository anymore. So if Hill wasn't with Owens and, and Bill Alexander and Jim Neal, how did he get out there? Right. And let's go to Earlene Roberts. Earlene Roberts is a housekeeper at 1026 North Beckley, and she identifies that Oswald came in, changed his clothes, went back out, and then she saw him standing waiting for the bus. Now, in the intern, while Oswald supposedly in that house, 
she hears a toot toot and looks out the window and she sees a Dallas police car. Now, the initial, the, let's put it this way. The newsman came in that afternoon and she identified that car as 207. And then miraculously later on, she gets all confused and now it's different numbers. And I thought, she had, I, thought she had, I thought she identified it as 107. Well, she did later on. Okay. She did later on, but her, her initial observation in the afternoon to the news reporters, and this has all been covered up too, is that that car was identified as 207. So if it's car 207 and Valentine, by his affidavit, stayed at the school book depository and didn't retain his keys until at the end of the day, and it's not clear what really happened there because he's inside the school depository doing the job that he was assigned so you have compartmentalism in that fashion I see Gerald Hill in car 207 in front of 1026 North Beckley yeah I mean that's quite possible yeah I mean you gotta kind of put these pieces together when you add and subtract these affidavits and testimonies, you come to the conclusion that Hill isn't really with the guys that he said. We already have basically Hill lying about Booney up in the school book depository. We also have Bill Alexander, like, where is he and what is he doing there? I mean, he has no business there at that point in time. Yeah, I mean, he's a, you have, he's a DA. You know, hey, well, he's, yeah, he's a DA, but What's he doing at a crime scene? That's not really his job. Exactly. And what's he doing going out to 10th and Patton? And what's he doing at the school book depository? They have all these administrative guys that have nothing to do with the case, but they're still involved in the case at the beginning stages. I mean, you have detectives and beat cops driving squads to these places to make arrests or whatever has to be done. Remember, these administrative guys are going in yeah, they're going to the school book depository where they think a shot was fired, and they don't have any guns. Yeah. I mean, what, you know, what, they're putting their life on the line without a gun. I mean, it's kind of strange to think about. So you have to consider the fact that there's got to be something maybe going on other than what's going on. So, uh, I mean, I see Hill tooting that horn in front of 1026 North Beckley. And I also see that what she's, what Erling Roberts saw as Lee Oswald was not the Oswald. I believe it was Larry Crayford. I felt this for a long period of time based upon testimony and, and Larry Crayford being knowing Tibbet. He's knowing Jack Ruby. Yeah. Uh, and he's kind of evasive in his. You know, he doesn't. He, in his testimony, you're getting the opinion. Hey, hey, stay away from me. I don't want to get involved in this. Okay. And let me give you a little nugget too. Uh, when I talked to Greg Parker, uh, of course, the show hasn't aired yet, but um, and this is not a spoiler because the show will have already been out by then, by now, when people hear this. But he's come to the conclusion that, like you, that Oswald never was staying at Beckley. Um, there was a, there was somebody registered there under the name of O. H. Lee, um, but there was also a guy staying there named Herbert Lee. 
So, um, and I don't buy the, I don't buy the story that Larry Crayford was living in the Carousel Club. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure he would, Ruby would have set him up with a, you know, somewhere to stay, a rooming house, which is kind of appropriate for the type of person that Crayford was. And uh, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, just to give a little more, a little more potency to what you're saying here, Earlene Roberts is the sister of uh, Bertha Cheeks. Now, Jim Garrison was hot on investigating Bertha Cheeks because of her association in business matters with Jack Ruby. Right. So that's just a little bit, you know, we can't really pull it fully together, but you're starting to see how there could be possibility because all these people know each other. What What is going on here? Yeah. So, I mean, Earlene Roberts, the last, her last observation is that Oswald is way over who she thought was Oswald's way gets a bus. And I see that that person being Larry Crayford goes with Gerald Hill. And the time is just about right, probably five minutes after one. They get in the car together, and they're down there at 10th and Pat. And I see the assassination of J.B. Tibbet as a planned thing. Okay. And there's many other players that come into, into this thing, um, like Perry Olson, who Mark Lean was big on, and you had uh, Doris... Holland, who made observation of another police car in the alleyway. And remember that Tibbet, when Tibbet pulled up on the street, he blocked off a small driveway alleyway at that time. Now it is not set up like that. They, they, they've changed the configuration a bit. But she made observation of a police car down that alley. Yeah. Now, there was no other, there was supposedly Kenneth Croy was the first one to officially get to that scene. Yet we have observations of police cars in an alleyway, and that that could be a timing aspect of where I see Hill in car 207 coming around the back, and he's in that alleyway. Now we go to Aquila Clemens, who was never called before the, the uh, Warren Commission, and she's making observation of a short, stocky guy, which could match the description of Gerald Hill. And she's also matching him up with another guy that was at that scene who was tall and kind of thin, who I see as Larry Crayford. Right. Now, hang on a second, Russ, because I just had a, a slight epiphany here. Um, you were saying that the, you, you think that the murder of Tippett could have been planned. Uh, what about this scenario? Um, because we have reports of Tippett, of course, waiting at the Glocko station there across the viaduct on Houston Street. What if he what if, what if Tippett was assigned, okay, to keep an eye on Oswald and say Oswald instead of instead of leaving the depository that way, um, you know, walked you know, say he caught the bus or or or, or a cab or some other way. Say he hopped in the Rambler, whatever. Anyway Tippett waits there and never sees him come. All right, so Tippett's panicking, and because we yep. have the, we have the report of him going in the top ten records, right? Making a phone call, right. nobody answers, or if they do, he doesn't say anything. Okay, so what if Tippett was assigned to, to track Lee Oswald 
you know, to keep an eye on him and wh exactly where he was. And what if Tippett met up with uh, Gerald Hill and Larry Crayford at a, you know, or say they ran into each other or it was a predestined uh, spot to meet. And they were pissed because he lost Oswald. Could be. You know, or... Well, not only, not only that, we know that Ruby, in the in his fact of the whole thing, you know, he knew a lot of people in Harry. You know, Harry Olson. Right. Who I probably, I would have to say he was probably there too, although his his excuse was he was watching some of the state in the nearby area, but there was a lot of information you could pull on with Larry, Harry Olson, who shortly after... All this stuff, he he took off to California, I guess, and eventually went to Las Vegas. So he's 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 out of town, you know. I mean, Larry Crayford had to be brought in from, to give his Warren Commission testimony. So these guys are all trying to escape this thing to try, try and stay away from something. There's something right. going on here. Well, Larry Crayford left town in a hurry the next day. Yeah, and he, he, you know Harry Olson had uh, what they say was a two to three hour conversation with Jack Ruby and Harry Olson's girlfriend you know and which may play into the fact that uh, some people surmise that in that conversation hey we that Harry's telling them hey we gotta get rid of Oswald here because by then all the information started channeling and you know we had the wallet that was found which I still haven't got into yet that you know the Oswald's at 10th and Pat. Oswald's up at the school book depository. He's assassinated the president. Uh, we've arrested uh, one Oswald out the front door, and they're carrying away a, what might be a second Oswald out the alley in the back of the Texas theater. Right. So I think that something went terribly wrong, and they had to cover their tracks here. And you have DPD officers that either were doing these kind of things before and got away with it and something went terribly wrong and they had to start covering their tracks and when they tend to cover their tracks we start seeing things like I'm trying to talk about with Hill as far as what I see is a lie up in the school book depository uh, uh, there's a lie attached to who he got out to Oak Cliff because uh, Westbrook got out there with another officer and he, he went to the he was over by Jefferson at the first point, and he gets involved in finding the jacket. And there was a guy that they thought was suspicious that went into the, uh, I think the church. There was a church there, and right. that ended up being a false lead. The guy was just reacting to the fact that he had heard stuff. <clears throat> so Westbrook, who again, who is an administrative guy, he talks about being given a gun by one of the officers, okay? And he's in that area of the alley off of Jefferson that they're trying to find this guy who they say was leaving the crime scene. Now, of course, Westbrook is coming in after the fact, so at that point, there's no way for all these guys to communicate with each other. And this is why I think something went wrong there, and the right hand and the left hand that used to work together don't quite know what's going on. And, of course, we have the videotape that will, from the uh, local TV station that shows Warren Reynolds with Westbrook, and they're looking at this wallet. 
yeah. and contained supposedly within his wall is two forms of identification linking Oswald and uh, Alex Heidel together. Yeah, how convenient is that? You know, it's it's a really strange thing to look at because Westbrook eventually he ends up in the in the Texas theater also. So, how do, how do we make sense of all this other than the fact that something had to be terribly wrong? Something something is not right here because they all eventually, including the FBI agent Barrett, who was at Temp and Patton, he ends up at the school book, at the at the Texas theater. Hill ends up at the Texas Theater. Bill Alexander ends up at the Texas Theater. Westbrook ends up at the Texas Theater. And they're all coming into the building in different fashions or different times. Some of it is not clear, but we know Westbrook came in from the from the back. We know Hill came in through the front, and his initial climb into the building was that he said he went and searched the balcony, and he didn't find anybody up there. Right. Although there is citation that says that there there was a, an Oswald or there was a gentleman arrested from the balcony, yep. which Hill said he already searched. Yeah. Okay. So, but now they're all converging, and then there's the actual arrest that happens in the seats, and McDonald's in the tuffle. He's the first one that goes down, and then you have all these cops converging, and I think even one of them thought that they had one handcuff on Oswald, and then apparently there were so many hands in the pie there that you know they almost tried. They almost handcuffed one of the officers. <laughs> of course, Bill Bill Carroll is said that he's the one that took the gun out of Oswald's hand or it dropped to the floor, or he got the gun. There's, there's conjecture there too, and so we have Bentley involved in this, and he's caught. Photography, and a beautiful shot outside the school book, uh, outside the Texas theater, and you see Hill in the background, and, and Bentley's chopping out a, a cigar, and yeah. another officer by his side. As they're putting Oswald into the backseat of the car, that eventually takes him back to have his formal arrest. And we now have Bob Carroll driving that car. We have Gerald Hill in the front seat, and Gerald Hill says that Carol gave him the gun that was taken at the at the arrest inside the theater, and gives it to Hill. You know, he, Carol Carol's involved in that, but there's a little bit of obfuscation there. That's the stories don't align. But from what we can see now, the gun was handed from Carol to Hill. So now Hill has the gun that supposedly, when they put this whole charade together, that Oswald used to kill Tippett. But we have a bent firing pin that don't work. We have other things that come along that just don't fit together. How are you going to how are you going to shoot an officer when mechanism for the gun don't work? Uh, but then later on, more stuff comes out. But in the back seat, we have Bentley taking a wallet from Oswald yeah, the with man the same kind wallet. of identification that we have uh, being pulled out of the wallet. It's all pent and pat. Now, I mean, nobody has two wallets that they carry around, so what's the right story? Yeah, nobody drops a wallet at a, at a murder scene where they just killed somebody either. Oh, well, 
the chances are less. I mean, maybe, you know, if he was trying to stay quick and, you know, things happen, he, you know, had to get out of there as possible. But what man carries two wallets? <laughs> right? And you can't, he, he, he'd say he drops one at 10th and Patton, and he also has one taken out of his out of his person uh, in the backseat of uh, the, the police squad while after he's been arrested. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know anybody who has two wallets. Well, I could see, I could see possibly if one wallet only contained uh, Alex Heidel identification and information, and one wallet was was Lee Oswald only stuff. But you got both wallets being found with both kinds of identification in both of them. Yeah, it makes you think that there's one story that's not right, and which one is right. I don't know. I think uh, FBI Barrett thinks that the uh, because he saw the wallet at 10th and, and Patton, he believes that the the wallet that was taken in the back of the squad never happened. He's basically calling Bentley a liar. Well, I mean, and, if, it, if it did happen, that, then you gotta you gotta assume that the one found at 10th and Patton was a obvious uh, attempted at framing Oswald. Yes. And who brought that wallet there? Well, possibly Larry Crayford, if he was impersonating. Well, there, there you go. Now you're, now you're back to why I think that it was not Lee Oswald at, in North, at 1026 North Beckley. And that also explains the honking, because Hill is not going to... If you assume that Hill is driving that car, or somebody's driving that car because early Roberts saw the car, saw the squad. Okay, whether you want to believe it was it was two oh six, two oh seven, car five. I don't care what number you want to assign to it. There's a cop outside that conveniently at the same time that the so-called Oswald is in in ten twenty six. Right. Something is not right there. There had to be a reason why a honking is going on outside that car, outside that house. Yep, and when you look at the timing of how long it would have taken Oswald to actually walk and get to 10th and Patton, it impossible. doesn't work. Yeah, it's impossible. Unless he you know, and that's why you see the Park Commission also changed the time of the assassination of Tibbet. It's impossible. I mean, you've got an ambulance picking up his dead body and taking it to South uh, Southern Methodist uh, Hospital, and he's pronounced dead officially at one thirty. I mean, there's just not enough time for it. The, the first cop supposedly on record came after his body was gone. Yeah, that's what you bothers know? me. That's what bothers me too, Russ. I mean, you know, I, I picture it in my mind as like, you know, these Keystone ambulance drivers pull up, they hop out of their, sh- they hop out of the ambulance, throw Tippet on a stretcher, shove him in the back of the ambulance, and go. <laughs> I mean, that's the way I see it. See it playing out when in actuality, and, and I was having this conversation with somebody yesterday. Who, who tried to tell me that uh, that the ambulance drivers weren't trained paramedics or, or trained at anything other than driving an ambulance to and from. And I just can't see, if you would pull up on a crime scene where you have an obviously dead officer who is the recipient of four separate gunshot wounds, three to the chest and one to the head, he's dead. Okay, I mean, he's obviously dead. I don't understand why they wouldn't wait for the police to show up. You know, or try some kind of, you know, at least stop the bleeding, uh, CPR, 
you know, something like that on scene before they actually, you know, try to get him somewhere so fast. Well, again, this is orchestration. It's more that supplies to the theme of what I'm talking about here. And not only that, Tibbet's got a bullet hole in his head. Exactly. I mean, that's 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 like gangster stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> that, yeah. that, that's some heavy nonsense. I mean, you you are you're an ambulance driver out there if you're paramedic or not. You see a bullet hole, you know that man's dead. Right. Obviously, I mean, you, dead. You know it. So that leads that leads to what you're trying to say that why are they pulling the guy out there? Why aren't they waiting? do all the official stuff. Nope, they're cutting this thing away. Now, you know, again, they're pulling that body out of there away from the 10th and Patton crime scene in a very quick period of time after he was shot. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and if you, you take a look, I mean, you, you look at the distance from 10th and Patton to Southern, Southern Methodist Hospital, I mean, you, you got... Tibbet shot. It's good. I mean, the, the guy, the, the this ambulance doesn't pull up in, in a few seconds. It's not like they're sitting around the corner waiting for Tibbet to get shot. Okay, so you got time there. You got time. They, they're looking at him. They pick him up. They put him in the ambulance. They got to go around, close the doors, get in the thing, drive it to the hospital, and he pronounced officially dead at one thirty at the hospital. He's DOA. Okay. Yeah. Now, so you had all that time together. You start and now it starts subtracting from the time that the Warren Commission is saying that he was shot. You know, so uh, this is one of the things that I wanted to talk to Joe McDride about because you know we're narrowing this thing down. I, I believe Joe believes it's about 106 was the time. Right. Well, that blows Helen Markham's story right out of the fact. Right out. I mean, there's, there's no way. I mean, these people, is everybody on this case Superman? You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's impossible to think about it this well, way. That's why I said I pictured the, the ambulance drivers and, and his Keystone cops, you know, like in, <laughs> in his old-time movies, you know, where they're moving in fast-forward, it seems like. Yeah, yeah people in real life, don't, you can't speed the film up. Things happen in, in a in a time that we're still living by now, you know. Yeah, and the man's obviously dead. I mean, they're not going to be in a hell of a hurry you know, to get him to the hospital. And, well, I was talking to somebody, they said that the ambulance service was only two blocks away. I don't know if that's right or not, but... Well, they'd have to be probably a half a block away to do it the way the Warren Commission said. Right, right. I mean, it just isn't going to work. But I want to go back to Westbrook for a second here, because, like I told you, his, his testimony says that an officer gave him a gun. Now... There's nothing that says, well, I gave the gun back to the officer. But what's interesting is when Westbrook gets back to his office, somebody puts a gun on his desk. Okay, that's what he says. And apparently, it had to be Gerald Hill. Because Gerald Hill had a gun given to him in the squad at the time of arrest brought back and he's even got a picture of him there's a picture of him holding the shells on one hand and the gun in the other open and, you know it's, he's, he's just apparently just taking them out right yet, this, yet this gun that Westbrook has has shells on it <laughs> and he can't remember who put the gun there and he said that another officer doesn't name the guy 
He asked him, he didn't know. And what's interesting about Westbrook is he has to be a detail man. He was on, he was at the DPD since 1941. He was promoted two times to the position that he was. Okay. So he's a captain. And this guy's got to have details. But at all the convenient points in time when he should know something, he can't remember. Yeah, how And here's a guy after he retires from the DPD, supposedly, supposedly got involved with the CIA and they put him down in Vietnam to be part of the security team. I think he was CIA all along going back to the OSS. And this puts him into the good old boys club with Alan Dulles and a few other people. Probably so. I mean, either that or our military intelligence. There's something going on here because the CIA was heavily infiltrated into the Dallas police. There's a couple other examples of this. And when we look at this whole case from start to go, and you get Alan Dulles as the director of the Warren Commission, when he was fired by Kennedy, you start to understand that these guys are playing ball together. They know what they got to do. Yeah, that's a, that's a big red flag, people. Uh, just yeah. look look at the Warren Commission and see who's on it, and <laughs> there you go. That's all you need to know, yeah. really. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, and these guys, you got to remember too, with Decker's power and Fritz's power, you have certain things that. You know, just the interrogation of Oswald and the notes and and the shell that he picked up and all these things that come into later. And, a, and, and this even leads credence to why Craig was fired from the DPD because he knew too much. And then, you know, you can say it as you will, all these little accidents that he had. To me, they're trying to figure out a way to get rid of him. Just like they did, I mean, Buddy Walther's. Buddy Walters was so up Bill Decker's ass, it wasn't funny. Yeah. He wanted to be the next guy. He he was Bill Decker's boy, and he ended up in a mysterious accident. You know, he's the guy that was right there when that supposedly FBI guy picked up that shell. Supposedly, I think, a forty-five caliber. Right. And you know, they're trying to say the projection of that shell was somewhere coming from the intersection of Elm and Houston, and it was obfuscated back when it really came from what they say is a knoll. Now, this goes back to part of our conversation that we had before about the shooter on the knoll. And that might be that might be where that came from, Rob. Yeah, and, and also Weitzman, uh, what, happened to, what happened to him, I think he ended up in a mental institution towards the end of his life, and he met an early demise as well, and I mean, he See, did, these guys, you know, these guys, you know, they might be able to get like Weitzman. They got him to change his story. He went on CBS and he interviewed. I was mistaken. Blah 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 blah. Right. Uh, they they didn't go after Boone for some reason. I think they just kind of quieted it up. You got to remember that all those boxes that are available to us from the the DPD, as far as their affidavits, didn't come become available to the mid seventies. Okay. So a lot of that stuff didn't come out till later on. Right, and most of it didn't see the light of day until, what, 1989, I think it was? Yeah, well, that was, yeah, I think that was part of the assassination review board's stuff, if I'm 
not mistaken. Well, that that was a little too early for that. Um, yeah. But maybe getting it online was. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, it's in that same time period, though. It, it definitely is. I mean, you had somehow or another that information came out, whether it be through the uh, Assassination Review Board or through Freedom Acts, you know? Yeah, because I'm trying to, I was trying to think back when uh, Ray and Mary LaFontaine had access to those DPD uh, files. I think it was 89. Uh, when when they did get access to them, I don't know if they would had been. Uh, they'd probably been open, like you said, for years before that, and nobody just bothered with them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, I've always been a guy that felt that if you're honest, you're, if you stay honest, you don't have too much to worry about. I mean, people try and say this and say that to make it look like a lie, but eventually they've got to tell lies to co- get that too. You know. So eventually a liar is brought out through it. This is where Hill is the one of the key central players in all these things. He's at the three places. And he was the guy that announced to the newsmen after Oswald was brought in the first step of, of this whole thing. So that begins the orchestration of the media. And then the media is playing ball. And, you know... If you watch all the major networks, if you watch their presentation during that time the assassination occurred, you start seeing all this information. I mean, it was, they were talking about the Mauser first, and then they finally had a comeback. So, well, no, it wasn't a Mauser, it was a man like a Carcano. The FBI gets involved, something goes up, and then it comes back. And then you have Paul Brody, who says the, the FBI came, and now mysteriously on that Monday, they have fingerprints on the gun. Uh, you know, it's all after the fact. Right. You know, it's, it's just... And then, of course, the Warren Commission comes along with Dallas as a director, and then they decide, and basically he's directing where the information goes, you know. But I, I just see it very important to understand that these guys that don't get called in this the Warren Commission, they are the guys that you have to look at. And I think this fits into Mr. Joe McBride's idea that you look into, I guess he really got it from Penn Jones, that you look into the areas that are least investigated because those are, those are the things that are really going to tell you what's going on here. It's, it's kind of strange that, you know, they did all this stuff as far as the assassination and figuring all this out, but as far as looking into who killed Tibbet, uh, Tibbet the Dallas police just kind of, you know, this is one of their own guys, and they give him a memorial service and a big funeral and all this other stuff with his wife and this and that, but they really never go anywhere with it. Right. They did a very, very shitty job of, of actually investigating that and nailing down exactly what happened. Yeah, well, plus Harry Olson take off. Yeah, I know. I, mean, uh, I know Dusty uh, SR Dusty Road. He's been uh, he's been on the trail of Harry Olson, and hopefully is going to be interviewing him soon. So we'll see where that leads. I think that his uh, his idea of who was at that tenth and patent is a little bit different than what I'm presenting here. Right. I, I'm not sure that he's really into this Larry Craver really being a guy at 10, 26 North Beckley. But, it, you know, Larry Craver being that person really starts to pull together 
a lot of the stuff that makes sense here. Yeah, it definitely explains a lot. And, you know, when you're looking at Larry Crayford, and there was also, um, I believe they were at the B&B, they were seen together, him and Ruby, very, very late into the evening on that Friday night. You know, possibly conversing about how things were going to go the next day. Um, And, you know, the the events of, of early Saturday morning before Crayford actually left town, you know, where, where, where Ruby grabbed him and, and George Senator and was riding around uh, taking pictures of billboards, if you believe their story. You know, I, th- <laughs> I think they were um, trying to best parse out how this was going to go and eventually settled that, you know, Oswald was going to have to die. And uh, Crayford probably like, all right, you know, I'm done here. I'm getting the hell out of town. Peace out. See you later. And Ruby's like, all right, just take whatever cash is in the register and get the hell out of town. Yeah. Well, you know, one other key point here, too, is that um, Fritz and DA, uh, assistant DA Bill Alexander went to Ruby's safe deposit box, and supposedly there was nothing found in there. Right. Supposedly. Okay, now, <laughs> going back to the school of thought here, as far as the power of these gentlemen, uh, either they found something in there and it went away, okay, I don't know. There has to be a reason why Ruby on national TV would kill somebody. Right. Well, we have that's no... insanity. Yeah. That's insanity for someone to do that. Especially someone who who we who has never done it before. I mean, you know, if you're a, if you're a natural born killer, if you're a, a you know just a that kind of person in general that that would be able to kill people at will. Um, you know, which was no indication that Jack Ruby ever did or, or was that type of person, you know, to, to take another man's life for uh, seemingly noble reasons just doesn't fit in with, with anything that, that, that uh, Jack Ruby ever did before that point. Now, you know, the association of Tibbet, Oswald, and Jack Ruby, you know, it's not very clear. But if you want to go with the fact that they all knew each other and some of the reasons certain things are happening, I mean, Tibbet was supposedly painted as this, you know, wonderful husband and, you know, he been with the force a long time, but he was never promoted. Uh, there's been some information or, say, rumors that, that Tibbet was involved in drugs at some point or another. And, and if you going. want to go there, he, the association with Ruby, I've heard rumors of that too, you know, because Ruby was into so many things, uh, gun running, drugs, everything, you and know? women. And so, so that might be where that all fits in. And maybe Tibbet got caught with his pants down or something and they had to get rid of him. That's another, that's another aspect of possibly too. Yep, and uh, a good resource for people out there to check out. Um, I, ran, I ran across a good book. I don't know if you have you ever read any of uh, early researcher. I think his name is Joachim Jostin. Well, I've read some of that stuff. What I've made a point to Rob in my time investigating a lot of stuff is not to read too many books. Right, right. Uh, I've, been, I've been basically into the commission. Okay, which I explained the last time we talked. 
and then studying everything that happened as far as the official investigation went, okay? You know, the, the different committees and this and that, and just watching time associated with it, and what I call is theater associated with it, to make to come to the conclusions that I have. Right. Some of these, I think some of these writers, and I'm, and I'm not trying to put them down, but I think some of these writers channel their information or did channel the information before it all came together, you know? Yeah, I mean... They have to backtrack on some of the stuff they did. So I just kind of take it along to the point where it's accumulated to where I think, you know, like five years ago, I pretty much came to my conclusion about all of these things, putting them together. And I think last time I said the only thing that really changed any of my ideas was Sherry Feaster's work about the triangle associated with the blood spatter evidence. But now we got to get into the stuff that's coming out with the Zapruder film not being quite on the level. So that isn't a done deal either. Okay. Right. Yeah, the but, only reason I mention him is, is just because, you know, this cat was writing books before the Warren Commission report had even come out. I mean, he was and he was one of the early ones to finger uh, Larry Crayford in... You know, he he had he put together his points very saliently uh, uh, concerning uh, Larry Crayford. He had him uh, pegged as one of the prime suspects. And when you when you look back to um, early, early, I mean early, early books uh, written, you know, when the information is fresh, and you know it's still people are still willing to talk, and and you could have sources. Um, you know, very well-placed sources, which I think he did have, uh, he had to have had somebody in, in the DPD as a source to get a lot of his information. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah but, I, I was, it had to be true. You know, I, I, I mean, that. you look at Mae Russell. I mean, I was exposed to her when I was a youngster because, you know, she went, uh, I think one of the first stations that, that took on her broadcast was out of Buffalo. So I started listening to Mae for a long I mean, you know, when I was, you know, that's another part of the associations and stuff and listening to her. Because if you listen to her stuff and sit down and week after week after week and the accumulation of all this stuff, and that's where my question marks first started coming about, you know what I mean? And, and then seeing Rusted Judgment. Uh, and of course, that all led to really kind of the first book I read was Lifton's, you know? Yeah. Which really, that really got me into the medical evidence, which we discussed last time. And, of course, I don't quite go along with Lifton, and I don't quite go along with Horn, but, you know, I've listened to what they do, and I think they're an essential part to understanding this case. But, again, the information migrates, and there's so much obfuscation and compartmentalism involved in this thing. How can we actually know, even on... Even my theories are correct, okay? I can only take it as I see it and put it together. You know? Right, yeah. I mean, it's hard to parse out, you know, 50 years fifty years after the fact when, you know, thousands of books have been written, you know, thousands of articles have been written, you know, people have their theories out there. Um, and that, that's the only reason I mentioned that book is because I was in, yeah, I've been intrigued by, you know, first, first day testimony, you know, the earliest reportings, uh, are generally where most of the truth lies when when it comes to these big events. 
uh, including the Kennedy assassination, at least as close to the truth as we're going to get. Because as time goes by, stories change, witnesses uh, change their testimony. Um, you know, things change over time. And, and if you can get back and get to the heart of the matter as early as possible, I think that's where most of the truth, uh, at least that we can glean, can be found. Uh, to support that thinking, there was a the, the thing that I talked about with Erlene Roberts, that those news people, she's telling them, you know, car 207 is there in the afternoon. Right. You know, and you got, you have DPD and FBI at her house before Oswald was even arrested. Yeah. And that, now, what are they doing? How did they know what to do there? How, how did they know what to even get there? Right, I mean, nobody... What are they doing there? You know, are are they pulling clothes out of there and swapping them and putting Oswald's clothes in? Who knows what they're doing? But what's the, how could they know? How could they know before they got Oswald that they're looking to do something? And how did they even know he was even there? Because that, that's the point. That's, that address. That's the the earliest evidence. You're looking at the earliest evidence and it went away. Yeah, because nobody had that address. I mean, he, the address that I think they had on file at the school book depository for him was 605 Elsbeth. Or at the very least, they had his Irving address. Exactly. They went out to Ruth Paints. And yeah. now, of course, that's another whole charade going on with her. Yeah. Well, we'll save that for another show, Russ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, Robbie. It just. I mean, but. These guys are all professionals. Every one of them are professionals. And why is it that this don't make sense? There has to be a reason. Just like the insanity of Jack Ruby killing Oswald, which was my first revelation in this case at eight years old. That's what I saw in my own eyes. Saying to my father, this guy's got to be crazy. You know, even an eight-year-old can realize this. Well, he's either crazy or severely, severely motivated for self-preservation. <laughs> severely motivated. I mean, why? I think that's the key right there. He was severely motivated. You know, there's too many associations. You know, Curry comes out and says, not only a handful of the cops know what baloney, even Hill himself saying that most of them know. Hill knew, Hill knew Ruby for over 10 years. Yeah, they knew who he was, that's for sure. Oh. So, I, oh my God. did we hit? Did we hit just about everything there, Russ? Or is there anything yeah, else I, you'd I like to add? Or there's a, you know, again, I go back to what I said in the last interview. Then I hope that some of the things I'm saying—it's not maybe the first time it's been said—but uh, I'm hopeful that this opens up some new thinking, and we can go from here together to to get closer and closer and closer. I mean. I really feel at this point we're never going to fully get it because there's too much going on. Even when 2017 comes out and we're supposed to get all these CIA documents, like I can't for the life of me feel that we're just going to just go, okay, well, here's the real deal. You know, exactly. It's not going to do that. I think there's going to be, again, another level of obfuscation to cover that up because there's something so big going on here and it's got to keep going. And it's got to cover the tracks of all the other things that happen afterwards, which we discussed in the medical evidence one. Uh, it's just never going to come clean. But, but we sure are a lot closer than we ever were. That's for sure. No doubt. No doubt. 
Well, thank you, Russ, for coming back on the show, man, and talking about this. I think a lot of people will find this useful and will do like you said. At least it will give them something new to think about, a different way to, to look at the case and some of the aspects wrapped up in it. And, uh, dude, I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm, I'm hopeful to speak to Joe McBride here in the next month, and, and maybe he'll even hear this podcast and, and hear some of the things I've said. That'll give him a little bit easier perspective because I was hopeful to talk to him in person. Right. And well, maybe there's some other things that go on. I, I think that you know maybe you even might want to try and talk to Joe at some point, try to interview with him. You I know, because he's the guy who really, really looked into this deep. Uh, another guy possibly would be Bill Simpich. Um, he's heavily on Westbrook. Yeah. What's going on with him? I, those would be two good guys for you to speak with because. They really look at this thing uh, for what it is, I think. I mean, really, it's my opinion, but, you know, a lot of this stuff makes a lot more sense than it ever did before, you know. It yeah. certainly makes a lot more sense than the Warren Commission could have ever given this to it. Yeah, I mean, well, Joe, Joe reached out to me several, several months back before I was even doing guests, and I explained to him, you know, because he, 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 he said he would have no problem coming on the show and talking about it. Um, it, but it, just, it was at that point that I really wasn't equipped for guests yet. And now that I am, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your advice. I'll send this show to Joe, see if he can listen to it, and uh, see if he'd like to come on and talk. And uh, hopefully in the future, Russ, short future, um, you'll come back on and we can get into something else. Yeah, certainly, certainly. I, I certainly looked at this, you know, even beyond the association of the events around surrounding Dealey Plaza because it, there's also intriguing events that happen into Watergate, and then my basic feeling is that it all kind of ended with when J. Edgar Hoover was kind of carted out of his place at his death. You know? <laughs> exactly. That's really where the end all of all the players that had to be involved at the level they were were taken out, and there was a new after that, you know. Yeah, sounds good. Well, I'll have you back on here in a couple of weeks, and we can get into Watergate and uh, the untimely demise of, of Hoover and uh, anything else you want to talk about. Sound good? That's, that sounds fantastic to me. Always always welcome to, to try and push this case a little bit further. Cool deal. All right, people. Well, that's about it for today. Uh, I thank Russ LaChapelle again for coming on and talking to us today. Um this some bitch is in the can. Beam up to the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is Rob Clark on the Lone Gunman Podcast, and we are out. Make sure you tune in next week when my special guest, Charles Cliff, comes on the show and we get into the Garrison investigation full bore. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.